Hello everybody, welcome to our virtual 67 Palmal. Uh, last of all for this evening we'll be talking with Mike Patterson from Corofin, one of Marlborough's most successful micro negotiations. Uh, but for now we're very pleased to welcome back Jasper Morris, MW, author of Inside Burgundy, who, Burgundy, who's currently inside the middle of the vintage there and you can see plenty of his fascinating videos with winemakers on his Instagram account. And tonight he's going to be discussing the 2010 vintage. So please chat away on the side, share with us what you're drinking and where you're drinking it from and put your photos on social media with hashtag 67 from home. And a big welcome to Jasper. How are you, Jasper? Evening, Ronan. I'm extremely well. Um, like you, I didn't realise it was a bank holiday today. <laughs> Partly because uh, it isn't in France. Very rare that we have one in the UK and they don't have several at the same time in France, but uh, that's the way it is. Well, I'm, sit I'm sitting at my desk thinking, where are all the emails? And there's nothing. Yes. Well, lucky they weren't there. So this morning I went and, uh, this afternoon I did take some time off and went on a long walk through the woods. Um, there's a lovely walk from the village of Arsenal, which takes you past a, a cave where the local Mackie got uh, got shot, unfortunately, 1944. And then you go to a, uh, a Gallo-Roman um, uh, settlement and then you then you turn up at home. Okay. I did that this afternoon, but this morning I went around the vineyards in the Côte de Nuit and chatted to a few people. Coat to bone, the later people will, will be um, still at it, but the early ones are finished. A couple of people are finished in the Cote de Nuit, but those who are picking now say that the rain we had on Friday and again on Sunday morning has probably been quite beneficial and it softened the skins and brought the grapes that little bit further forward. Okay. That's all um, <coughs> encouraging yeah. stuff. Well, I think yeah, um, it's great to be catch up with it all on, on your Instagram account with some great videos as well. So Yeah, well, well, thanks for the plug, but uh, everybody do, do have a good look. So yeah. just a video up with Christophe Rumier um, uh, just uh, an hour or so ago. So do have a look at that. Great. Well, thank you very much, right. Jasper. As always, we're looking forward to this. Um, and okay. I'll carry on. Good, good, good. Uh, so you've got the list on the chat on the side of what we're tasting tonight, those of you who've got the selection. Uh, mine arrived in pristine condition, no, no heat problems at all, and we've, we've now moved through the really hot period. We'll warm up a bit later this week, but uh, we're not going to see the 30 um, degrees centigrade anymore, which is good. So welcome from uh, Istanbul, London. Uh, Tel Aviv, I think, and uh, Dublin, West Yorkshire. Keep those commentaries coming. And we're going to enjoy some 10-year-old wines from 2010 vintage. So some of you were with me last week when we looked at 20, in fact, most of you, I see you're a very faithful bunch on the whole. Um, we looked at the 2014 whites last week, a week ago today. And uh, it's, it's something which I'm enjoying doing is having a few horizontal tastings of um, some of the better vintages from Burgundy, some of the ones that have given the most pleasure. And we'll continue to do that. I'm beginning to plan the program through to the end of the year. We're gonna do one or two single vineyard occasions. We're gonna look at uh, Chambon Musigny, uh, Combe d'Orveau. Um, I'm gonna do one sort of sub-regional, one or two sub-regional ones like Coach Chalonez. And we will find plenty more to keep us amused. We might do a couple more with producers as well as long as we can find producers who use it to give us their wisdom rather than just plug their own wines. I think that's important. So 2010, the, the unexpected success, the, the miracle vintage to borrow Harry Waugh's phrase from 1978. And I'm gonna start 
us fairly early on because the winter was significant, the winter of nine and 10. And slightly ironical, but it was in December, they had the um, global warming uh, climate conference in uh, Copenhagen. And on the last day of that conference, temperatures suddenly dropped here in Burgundy down to about minus 20, even maybe minus 22. It's the coldest ever day recorded in Dijon. Um, we were here and having dinner and suddenly saw the temperatures crashing because we had horses outside. We thought we'd better just go out and check on them. And when you walk out of the house and it's about minus 16, minus, I think it was minus 18 even, it got colder later in the night, it just takes your breath away. It really is, is something otherworldly. And it got cold enough, um, on the, I think it was December the 19th, it got cold enough that it actually froze and snapped some of the vines. They still had um, some sap in them and the sap froze inside the uh, vine stock and quite a few didn't come back to life in the spring. It particularly affected those parts of the Cote de Nuit where the slope dips a little bit before it hits the main road, the old N74 at the bottom. So the vineyards in Chauvry-Champetain that had got frozen in exactly the same way in 1985, got frozen again in winter 9-10. Uh, bits of Clos Vougeot dipped down there and, and a little bit in Bone Romane as well. So it's pretty much more on the Cote de Nuit than the Cote de Bone. Uh, so that was a, a, a worrying uh, start to the season, even if it, the frost did kill off all the pests and diseases, which of course is a good thing. Uh, so then the spring eventually happens, but it gets off to a latest start. Um, flowering was both late, well, late by modern standards, but into the middle of June, and a little bit strung out because it was colder weather while that happened. And... Um, and the, uh, the sort of bunch set was not so good as a result. There was a fair amount of mineralondage, the hen and chicken in the Antipodean speak, uh, when the berries form at different sizes. Um, and at this point, it looked as though it was going to be a, a smallish crop and with an expected harvest date of third week, probably in September. So uh, over a long, long period, that's not particularly late, uh, but it's later than... 7.05.03.05.07.09 were all noticeably earlier uh, and so this was beginning to feel like a slightly late season. And actually the, the summer was mixed. Um, July was hot and dry and people began to worry a little bit that it was going to get too hot. Um, but the, the temperature was dropped a little bit in the second half of the month. And August never really, the summer never really happened uh, during August. And so people are beginning to feel nervous. It's all going to depend on the um, September weather um, because it's, it's on a knife edge, which I remember also a little bit in 2002, another vintage which was sort of aiming at mid to mid to second part of September. Um, and then there was a big, big storm on uh, the 12th, Sunday the 12th of September. The weather had begun to perk up. Then this massive storm came through, but that was in the Cote de Bone around the epicenter of it, because there was a lot of thunder and lightning, um, and it was around sort of the border of Chassin, Morinche, Sontenay. And so it affected the <coughs> white grapes, which were much nearer to ripeness in Chassin and a bit in Pyrenees and Marseille, but, but particularly at the southern end of Cote de Bone. Uh, Cote de Bone. The reds weren't ready, they could resist it better. And so as a result, um, the red harvest, which in any case 
wasn't going to be picked for another few weeks, uh, escaped any any negative damage from that in in in, in 2010. Um, <clears throat> so um, at this point, everybody is sort of thankful that the crop isn't that big, because with these very varied weather conditions through the year. Uh, I think if it had been the same size crop as 2009, it would really have struggled to get ripe and rot could have set in and been a big problem. Um, but it didn't. Um, and then towards the end of the month, they start picking the reds uh, from the coat to bone from around about 24th of uh, September. And again, it's in fairly mixed weather conditions. Um, but it, it doesn't really matter at this stage. Um, uh, they're not too fragile. Uh, they got away with it. And then through to the end of the month and in, into October, um, the last of the reds come in in the Cote de Nuit. And at this point, everybody's saying, well, thank goodness, we've managed to get the crop in. The disasters, which came pretty close to happening, haven't happened. Uh, and um, at the end, there was a little bit of the north wind, which is so often the savior of Burgundy, again, a parallel with 2002. Also happened 2004, 2008. Um, that came and, and sort of saved the day, but nobody's really expecting much more than saved the day. And then we came to um, uh, taste the wines and barrel um, a year later. In terms of vinification, people who sometimes use stems and um, in if the vintage is suitable, then um, they probably use much less in 2010 than 2009, for example, in the same way they probably used a bit less in 2017 than, than 18. Um, but anyway, so we come to a year later, I'm tasting the wines in barrel now, in common with other wine merchants and uh, wine critics, and we think, hey, these are actually quite nice, really. Not at all bad. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we begin to feel more optimistic. In those days, of course, I was selling wine, and so we were able to write fairly positive text for the, the January Burgundy offer. And increasingly, at the January tastings, they showed well, uh, customers, consumers were really liking them, and, uh, and so it built. And over the next few years, we've come to consider 2010 to be uh, a really charming uh, vintage for red Burgundy, and perhaps more than charming. Um, it is, to my way of thinking, and we'll see what we think at the end of uh, this session, it's as good as, uh, it's better than 2002 in the style of a vintage that didn't start out to be great, but actually has, has done very well. Um, but exactly how good 2010 is, we'll find out. Um, on the whole, more recent press has tended to prefer 2010 to 2009. Um, we almost the first, probably number two or three of all the Zooms I did before 67 had managed this wonderful idea of being able to send the samples around. Uh, we actually looked at 09 and 10 side by side, and I had with me a bottle of Chambon Museum Village from Rumier in both vintages. And the 10 just came out of the blocks, absolutely gorgeous. But the nine had more stuffing, uh, more intensity, and was going to be the really long-term wine of the two. The 10 was pretty much good for drinking. So I see some of you have got the samples and some of you are drinking all sorts of other things, uh, uh, but welcome everybody. And uh, now I'm ready to start taking a look at the first wine, which I have poured myself, but I haven't yet tasted. 
So, Mr. Costuri, of course, we know him and love him for the white wines, uh, which absolutely he's been the, uh, the master of whites now for quite a while. And he does, of course, produce uh, a few, it's a small percentage, but he produces a few reds, mostly from lesser appellations, the Montelis and Oxidurases, with the Volnay Premier Cru, and then this very nice Pomar Le Vaumurien. So I'm uh, just going to take control of the screen and show where it is. So here are Les Vaumuriens in two parts. So they're on the edge of Volnay. If you switched over, you'd be just above the Volnay Premier Cruise um, Chandelain Pature. Um, and you are here on, let's find a better. You've got here, uh, a slope which is mostly east, but also north as well. And it's not the classic soil of Pomar here. So imagine if you're you know, down here in the, in the main part, all through there, it's pretty rich soil, lots of clay, um, limestone as well, of course, um, but that's the really classic part, I go up a bit further, uh, of um, uh, Pomar. And instead, we're over here and high on the slope, cooler winds up here, and also a little bit of north uh, facing. So you're expecting something which is a little bit more chiseled, a little maybe elegant for Pomar, but not massively weighty uh, compared to um, what you can have. I'm just going to have a little sip of mine. So. I, I mean, I had a hope at one point that, I mean, we knew that we couldn't stop pricing shooting out for uh, the white wines of um, Costuri because they're so popular, but we did sort of hope that um, uh, maybe, maybe the reds would stay down. And I can see that this is actually now um, trading at about um, uh, uh, 200 pounds a bottle uh, for Village Pomar because of that sort of residual Costuri glory. So I'm looking at the wine and it is beginning now to um, evolve at the edge. So the middle is, is, is a, a sort of a red to brick red and the edge is just becoming a tiny bit, a little bit more orange. Yes, I did say that 2009 was a 50 year wine and 2010, uh, not so much. I perceive even on the nose, I'm always told that you can't smell tannins, but actually um, I find that I can smell a wine that's going to be tannic. You get a tiny little bit of leatheriness uh, on the nose and alongside this very pretty and very fresh fruit still, I'm just picking up a tiny little bit of the leather which speaks of the, of the pomade tannins. Uh, you can see clearly that this is correctly uh, assigned to being a village um, uh, vineyard and not a Premier Cru vineyard um, because it hasn't got the extra weight that you dig down into and it doesn't sort of kick on to extra levels. But it has got a very nice perfume and it's got um, a very pleasing um, uh, almost range of uh, flavours, red fruit flavours. Um, so yeah, showing well, happy with that. Since we got a village Pomar, I'll just talk for a little bit about uh, one or two other 
uh, vineyards here. So you've got some fairly, the heavy soil stuff is down here, doesn't stop them making good wines. And of course, everything belonging to the Chateau de Pomar and this rectangle here, that's all down there. And they managed to make from some of those plots some really uh, pretty fine wine, uh, powerful fine wine, um, which they do also charge quite a lot for. But uh, but I've been impressed with um, their winemaker, uh, Manuel Sala, they've made some good wines. My other favorites are up here, the Noison and Petit Noison. So like Vaumurien, they're high on the slope, but this time they're actually facing more down to the southeast. Um, and uh, they seem to be able to crop at decent levels, probably a little bit more there than up in Vaumurien. Um, uh, but Petit Noison and Noison have been on a roll, arguably, now with the global warming, we're going to see more interesting stuff out of consistently out of Vermeurion, uh, Trois-Follow, Vache, a very nice name, La Vache, the cow. Uh, these sorts of vineyards here and the Vermeurion. Right, that's uh, made a mess on that particular uh, Pomar map with all those circles, but it gives you an idea of, of what's going on. And I'm going to have for dinner, you may remember one of our earlier sessions, um, we had an absolutely beautiful Pomar Claude Zeppene 2010, uh, and it may very well, very well be that I'm going to spring that on my guests this evening. I have guests from England staying, and I was going to serve it to them blind, but I think one of them is listening in, so let's blow in that. Mm. Blind. <clears throat> I have to say, I served them some wines last week blind, and they, one of the guests spotted Charme Champetain from Denis Bachelet, didn't get the vintage right, but picked the vineyard and the producer, and he's not a professional wine person. And he also picked um, the Casuda Pinot Noir from Martinborough as well. So I was well impressed. On we go. So from Pomar, we're going to go next door to Volnay. We're going to be quite high on the slope here as well. Look, there is no end to Ronan's talents because he's got up onto the screen, the Volnay map, absolutely straight away. Pour mine. Left my samples in the fridge a tiny bit too long, so I'm a little bit cold now. And it's really got noticeably cooler here in Burgundy. I'm wearing, no longer wearing one of my very lightweight shirts. Um, right, so uh, in the same way that as Volnay, as Pomar, in the same way as many, many villages, you can see in that sort of fleshy uh, colour uh, in the middle, the Premier Cruise, and it's just a solid band across the middle. Um, and I tend to think that the ones south of the village are the best. Uh, plus, of course, Claude Duke uh, up here um, is, has its own special character. Uh, but classically, it was Cairo here, uh, followed by Champon, Sontenot that's over the border here in, in Merceau. Champon here, Chevrolet here. Um, and it's only more recently that Taipier and Claude Chen have really joined the, the crowd of absolute favorites. Um, so we've gone to Domaine Jean-Marc and Thomas Boulet. 2010, uh, Thomas was uh, fully involved. Uh, I think, uh, broadly speaking, him making the wine uh, by that period. And um, something, of course, that um, I, know, I thought some of these domains, well, I know exactly how they make the wine. And then 
I remembered back that uh, they weren't necessarily making wines in exactly the same way as back in 2010. So um, here we have Kodeshen, uh, two parts, uh, and uh, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that the Boulet holding is a little bit more in the upper part. It's certainly um, a vineyard that uh, Thomas Boulet, who has really brought this domain up into the uh, top category, uh, he thinks that this is quite an austere site. Uh, and I can see what he means. We're getting higher up on the slopes. So we're above the 300 uh, um, meter contour line uh, here, um, particularly if you're in the upper half as he is. He's also got some uh, village wines up above in his Blanche and also he's got this La Cave, Cave des Ducs as well. So uh, he's fortunate in his Clos de Chêne, whereas the, his Cairo is very young vines. And the Clos de Chêne, these are old vines, 50, 50 year old plus. Um, and let's have a look how it's showing. At this time, I don't think they were using any whole bunch. And this is a vineyard to which in recent times, 2017, 18, and starting a little bit before then, um, it's, um, uh, it's a, it's a, it would have been made as a destemmed wine. Um, and incidentally, just that commentary that's going through on the chat about 200 pounds on the Poma, that's not the domain that's doing that. That's the secondary market that's decided if it's costary, it can do no wrong. Uh, I'm not buying it at that price, for sure. But as Paul suggests, 60, 70 pounds, then yeah, absolutely. Pomar from a single vineyard, but not a premier crew. You'd hope to pick it up on Primeur, um, you know, below 50. And later on in bottle retail, maybe 60, 70 is reasonable. Right. So now we have uh, young Thomas Boulet. He's one of the crowd of modernists, uh, post-modernists, I think I'm going to call these people, who are beginning to uh, bring up the canopies and the trellising uh, much higher up, uh, giving a little bit more shade, a bit more foliage, hoping to reduce the, uh, or at least <clears throat> stretch out the ripening longer so that uh, you don't get sugars bounding away before the rest of the grapes, the other aspects of the grapes have got ripe. Um, so as I say, this is a domain in very good um, condition and they've built a whole new uh, winery uh, on the premises in 2016. So one to look out for onwards and upwards. The nose is a little bit backward to me. is a greater richness of flavour um, on the palate, quite high acidity. I pick up on what Thomas was saying to me about the austerity of it. Um, and it's a wine which is going to need a few more years, I think, really to develop into where this is capable of going. At the moment, I'm finding it a little bit in, in, in sixes and sevens, uh, but there is an intensity of fruit, which I'm positive about. Uh, so wait and see, and I will we'll try that again on air um, before we go uh, a huge amount further. Uh, one thing I would say, since I might as well use this opportunity just to bounce ideas off about where the vineyards are, if classically it was down here, was the exciting bit. Now, I think with the global warming, I'm really excited about 
through uh, the Chien Taipier. They weren't highly rated by Dr. Laval in the mid 19th century. And the area that worries me a little bit is down here, Fremier Angle, draw a line quite right place, Bria. Um, there's not so much topsoil here. <clears throat> these were always very, very early ripening vineyards. Uh, and these are the ones where it's becoming more of a struggle, I think, to get the grapes in the right balance at harvest time. <clears throat> and really, it's been fascinating in this 2020 harvest to watch people, how they're reacting to the conditions and which way to go. Um, do you start picking when you begin to see the acidities dropping and the sugars rising? Or do you wait until the skins and the tannins are fully ripe? This year, the pips seem ripe, and the tannins, uh, the skins we picked early, were perhaps just short of ripe, but you do have to make some sort of compromise. Uh, if you wait until your skins are exactly where you want them, you might find that your acidity has crashed. And I'd rather compromise on a not quite ripe skin than have to acidify. Uh, Kate, yes, global warming really is making a difference now. For me, I've said it in several of our uh, Zooms that we've done, 2018 for me is the turning point. And 18, 19, 20, they're vintages all in a style. 09 and 15 uh, give you a lead up to it. Uh, 03 was a complete outlier. Um, uh, Jeffrey thinks this wine isn't fundamentally out of balance. I completely agree. I just think it's not quite the right moment to be drinking it now. So. Um, and yes, there is certainly greater length of, um, of flavour in this. You can see one was a village wine and the other is a Premier Cru. I think that's justified. <clears throat> one last sniff before I move us on to... Mm. Yep, that acidity is just going to have to fold into it, but I see no reason why it wouldn't. Good, don't forget to keep asking questions as well as um, uh, commenting on the chat. Always helpful <coughs> to have a few questions. Uh, actually slightly lost where my questions will appear. <coughs> but um, do make sure that we get hold of them. Right, um, let's move on to the Hill of Corton then please. Here we are. You know, you can get a full-time job doing this, Ronan, if you, if you want to give up being a sommelier and so on. Thanks, Jasper. Yeah, <laughs> anytime. Ronan, also let me know if there are questions. For some reason, I'm only seeing the chat at the moment. I think it's because you're sharing the maps with me, so I can't see the Q&A. Yeah, I will do. There's none at the moment. None at the moment. Great. Okay. Right, so, um, Mr. Rappe, I've been trying to get one of his wines uh, into one of these tastings for a while because I think he's one of the uh, under undersung stars. I took a team um, round, uh, we, we do this with my neighbour Becky Wasserman, she does what she calls her Wion Symposia, and for a week, inside of a week, Sunday through to Thursday normally, we go and look at one village in real detail. Last year we did both Masso and the Hill of Corton. So we went to a few people in Corton and we asked them to put on tastings, maybe all their wines uh, horizontally in a young vintage and then go back with something older. 
And uh, Vincent Rappé uh, did it differently. He took a Penelvesles Blanc and a Penelvesles Rouge, and then his Corton Charlemagne Blanc and Corton Charlemagne Rouge. And he did a pairing of two older vintages of each, as it might be an 08 and an 09, or a 9 and a 10, uh, to show what very different vintages look like, but with some age on them. And uh, it was actually a great, great tasting. And he's a really interesting man. Um, <clears throat> so he used to be the main Roland Rappé. And then when he took over, it's become the main Rappé Perry Fils. His father, sadly, was one of the many um, star vignerons who passed away between last summer and uh, January this year. Uh, right, let me find my Puget. I've found it. Here it is. Zip, zip, zip. So this is a vineyard which <coughs> theoretically was going to be more red and less white, but, but an increasing number of people have actually um, switched over to white wines here. And at least in part, because the whites are very successful there, and you get more money for Corton Charlemagne than you do for Corton Rouge. So the two main producers, possibly the only two producers who've maintained Bouget and Red, are Louis Jadot, for whom it's one of a cuvee that they really care about, and indeed uh, Rappé. And typically they've both got, I think, reds in the lower part of the plot, moving up to uh, whites in the, in the upper part. So uh, here again is someone who's um, began life de-stemming and has moved to a certain proportion of stems. It's not a domain in which I ever uh, pick up um, a strong feeling of stems. They're in there, but I, but I don't actually um, uh, pick them up. Uh, hugely from the taste perspective, which of course, after all, is 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 really what matters. Um, so here in his Puget, it's my nose. I'm just something in that bouquet that's causing me a very slight anxiety. As if there's a just about a threshold cork uh, going on in it. Yes, we had the Jadot Corton uh, Puget, absolutely right, 2014, when we did the Cortons. And so now we've got the, I mean, broadly speaking, there is no reason why the soil is going to be any different. The winemaking can be different in that Jadot go for relatively high temperatures and high extract. And Rappé, though, it's, I'm saying that I think it was de-stemmed de at this period, which would be the same as Jadot, uh, it would be a little bit less pushed on the uh, extraction side and probably slightly uh, lower temperatures. So um, typically when the wines are young, it's slightly fresher fruit. Here we're beginning to see the color evolving uh, correctly as it should. I got in my sample a threshold of a cork paint um, yeah, Paul, is, uh, we must have come out of the same bottle. I think there is. Um, so, you know, we all know it's difficult when you first open a bottle. When it's just fractional, uh, it doesn't show and it, it develops in the glass. So by the time these have had a few days, yeah, you're, it's coming through now. Most people, Alistair, might have had a different one because of the rosy red fruit. Um, yeah, no TCA there. Uh, you know, it's going to be, uh, Klaus, it's got a bit, yeah. So, um, I mean, I don't know how many bottles uh, they would have used and sent out, but there is just a taint. That, uh, I'm sorry about that because it has um, a side effect of giving a tougher feel to the tannins as well. 
Another Paul's got the different bottle, lovely in the mouth. Um, so, no, I mean, so uh, I don't know how many bottles are being used now. I think recently we've been having audiences, which I suspect mean no more than 20 or 30 have actually signed up for the bottles, which means that probably only about three bottles are being used. So um, uh, I don't know for sure what the position is for tonight's uh, session, but it looks as though um, it looks as though we have one bottle which would have had a threshold or below threshold when when it was uh, processed cork tank but it's there now apologies so um ooh, which wine from Rappé do i like the most that's a, that's a, a good question uh he's got um uh, i think he makes a really good croissant charlemagne uh i'm going to need to um fresh myself for a second of all his uh, cuvées, which I can do very rapidly. Um, but uh, I certainly like both his Corsa and his Corsa Charlemagne. He's got some very good Pernod Vergeles uh, cuvées as well. Uh, so bear with me for a second. Um, incidentally, to give a quick plug, um, working hard on second edition of Inside Burgundy, but for the second edition, almost every vineyard is going to have a list of who has what holding in it. And uh, almost every producer is gonna have a list of what holdings they've got. It won't be everybody, everybody. Uh, and I, have I got Rappé's information yet? Uh, no, I haven't yet collected that information from, from Rappé. But he's got uh, vineyards in Bone, in Pernod, in Alors Coton, uh, possibly a Sabini. It's fairly consistent across the board. Um, and you know, because it's those sorts of appellations, they are not too expensive. Um, let's get you back. I don't think I disappeared from you, but you disappeared from me for a second. Mm. Yeah, ouch. I start to say, oh yes, I like the fruit in that, and then I get hauled back by that little bit of cork. Bummer, but it's there to remind us. Um, hmm. Sid's got a question which is more about 2020, so I'm going to save that up for a little bit later, Sid, but thank you for asking it. Okay, so I thought I would do Even Stevens between Cote de Bone and Cote de Nuit in 2010. I actually don't think it's a vintage where there is a clear benefit from one coat over the other. I do sometimes think that. Um, for example, 2006, I felt was definitely a uh, Cotinui vintage. Um, 1979, 1989, and possibly 1999 were more uh, Cote de Bone vintages. So you know, it, it, it can vary. Uh, 2010, I wouldn't have come, I haven't come to a firm uh, conclusion either way around. And we're going to move now to Geoffrey Chambertin and see what Denis Morte, or rather his son, Arno Morte, as Denis left us in 2005, see what he thought about. Oops, I'll just uh, grab the annotation back. I haven't got control of the screen, sorry. Let me get control of the screen again and clear away. 
I don't know why, but that has, has refused to clear for a minute. So ignore that, what you can see there on the screen, that circle which is up in the forest by Ben Eyre. So, I have the annotation tools and we'll start again. So, village Chevry Chambertin, it's a huge amount down here, which is lighter, very much light, lighter colour and some soft red fruit, bits of strawberries quite often come into it. Um, and then you've got north of the village and heading on into uh, the half of Brochon, which is allowed to be sold as Chevry Chambertin. Uh, let's see if I can clear it now. Still can't clear that one. Never mind. Apologies for that. Let's see if I can do it with the eraser. No. Enjoying playing around with the different things. So, um, back in those days, um, the Domaine Motte used to make a regular chevret, and then they had Enchant, which was out on its own, and then they had other vineyards which they classified as Vieille Vigne. Uh, I think. Um, on Dere was one, can't remember if they got Jean or not, but they're, they're pretty much all in this sector. Uh, more recently, they now make Mes uh, Cinq uh, Terroirs. My five favorite um, terroirs is the blend of Chevrolet Chambertin, which Arnaud Morte makes under the Denis Morte label. He also has a Chevrolet Vieuxvin under his own label, but those are vineyards that have come to him separately and subsequently. So uh, they've just built themselves a new winery, but of course they didn't have it uh, at that time. And let's make sure I get the right road, but I think I can place that winery exactly here. Uh, I can remember it's not, the stars don't come out very well uh, where the heart is. Um, so this, uh, again, this would have been um, destemmed at the time and nowadays is, Rinse the glass a little bit, make sure it's all right. Yep. Ooh. I think we're going to like this. So, and this is absolutely the, if I can use the word, no, I'm not going to use the word zeitgeist, but it's the tendency between 2010 and 2020, whole bunches go up and uh, new wood comes down. Um, Ronan, have a go and see if you can remove that stain on Chevrolet Chambertin that I've left. I don't know if you will be able to or not. Um, but uh, for some reason it didn't want to disappear. Um, so, Denis Morte himself used uh, a great deal of new oak. Son Arno, right, thank you. Uh, Son Arno, right from the start, reduced the amount of new oak. And uh, now, uh, it, it's come down uh, a bit further. But as soon as I taste this, you've got the, the rich modern extraction, if I can call the modernists, uh, as opposed to the postmodernists, those who do the cold soak, dark colours, new wood, fair amount of extraction. But Denis Morte never really exaggerated that too much. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of comfortable with um, where he was. It, uh, all, matter, all that matters is whether or not it's in balance. Um, uh, Moana has asked, do I think that new generations, sons and daughters, bring a different style of the wine over the years? They can't help but make some change, even if they continue in exactly the style of their parents. Just the fact that it's a different person doing it will do. But now that everybody goes to wine school, uh, and at wine school, they meet loads of other people of their generation, 
and then they go and taste in each other's houses. They maybe are being taught different things at the school, but schools don't always evolve as quickly as practice on the ground is evolving. Uh, inevitably, the new generations have bring, are bringing in some new ideas. So um, we are back to what we did in the um, Côte de Bone is we had village premier crew and grand crew, and we're doing exactly the same in the Côte de Nuit. But as soon as I put my nose in it, with the exception that personally, I would like a bit less vanilla. Others will be happy with that. But the intensity of the fruit and the vibrancy of it, and look at the color, not just is it darker, but it's also much more useful color than anything we've had so far. Just to point out that one or two of you are sending your messages to all panelists. And if you could um, reconfigure so that it goes to panelists and attendees, there should be a drop down menu that enables you to do that. That's good, and then, then you can share it all. But um, various people with Christian names schooling with K are just on all panelists at the moment, Kevin and Klaus. <laughs> hmm. Right, I'm, um, so let's say I own a dozen of this, which I don't. Um, I'm perfectly happy if I've cracked the first one tonight. I probably would have been perfectly happy if I'd cracked it earlier, but I'm going to be in absolutely no hurry to drink this wine at all. It's not that it needs the extra time because it's all there, but I just think it's got, it does have more to give and I'd like to see the oak integrating a little bit more. I think Council of Perfection is probably, if you were to have a case and to start now, to drink one now, one next year, and then suddenly you'll hit the moment when it's better than it's ever been before, and then you can drink quite a lot more. Um, but there's a glossy feel to it without losing the vibrancy, but it's got that generosity and glossiness, which I do think of as sort of school of Gervais Chambertin of the people who get it right, the Claude Dugas, the Denis Mortes, um, uh, increasingly, I think, perhaps uh, Dugas P. Uh, it doesn't mean it's the only way of doing it. It's not the same as the Rousseau way. And of course, uh, I absolutely love Rousseau uh, and various other people who prefer not to do it. Um, but yeah, um, <laughs> the star page three stunner. Um, I consider that to be uh, really, really uh, success tonight. One of the sadnesses out of COVID, I mean, the, the first world problem type of sadnesses is that we couldn't do our 10 year on tasting of the 2010s that would have been on the second Sunday in June. We've got a thought that we might do it, we're hoping to be able to do it in a modified format in October, but it's an event in which the growers come along and with at the moment COVID cases rising, though fortunately not in the Cape door, Actually, it's a small digression, but it's worth doing. The police are going round and they are testing people at various wineries and in the vineyards. And if you get tested, somebody in the vineyard gets tested and proves to be positive, uh, you've got to pull the whole crew out. That's it. They're all confined. So who picks your grapes? If it's somebody in the winery who tests positive, you've got to put all them in confinement. So who's going to make the wine for you? Fortunately, it's still very, very low numbers uh, here in Burgundy. Uh, and we're just all keeping fingers crossed. But I did talk to somebody who was just thankful that he'd finished and that uh, he got through without having anybody testing positive. Because you can't force your workers to take tests. 
You can ask them if they'd be kind enough to, but you can't force them to do it. Right, okay. Where are you picking tomorrow, Mark? Let us know. I'm, pick I'm theoretically picking tomorrow. As some of you may know, I'm co-owner of a small vineyard in Bone, and tomorrow is the day. Um, as I say, I've got guests staying overnight. We might drink a bit more than we ought to. Um, well, so far, Moana, I haven't, I haven't heard any cases where it is, but I think what you'd have to do is pull that crew out and maybe ask somebody to pick it for you or possibly perish the thought, have to put in a, a machine to pick it. Probably there will end up being ways round, but it will be really, really difficult thing to manage. So. While we're on the subject of picking, I can tell you that at uh, six foot four, six foot five inches tall, it is not something I find very easy to do or can do for more than about an hour. Right, enough chat. Let us move on to, ah, Gisèle Dato. So this was the former domain Bato Noela. The vines came from um, originally Marcel Noela. Um, and uh, one of his daughters married Gaston Barthaud, and uh, another daughter um, married into the Noela cousins in um, Von Romanet. It's all very complicated. I have at last found a case of somebody actually marrying their sister in Burgundy. Uh, it was only a stepsister or a half-sister or something, but uh, nonetheless, I have at last found an occasion. Uh, of that happening. Uh, right, Chambon Musée. We have the map. My heart is still there from before and it's not quite in the right place. Um, clear, boing. Oh, I've got rid of them, brilliant. So let's get my heart going. Where are the beaux bruns? The beaux bruns are here, the beautiful browns. So um, you will notice from beaux bruns going southwards, aux échanges, Au Combat, uh, not Les Plantes, but those three, they are all partly in Premier Cru and partly in Village. And there is a difference between the two. It's not arbitrary. Um, you also have it up at the top with Les Crabes being a bit of both. Um, and of course, La Combe d'Orvo, which is part Village here, part Premier Cru here, part Grand Cru is Musigny, and there's also a little bit down here, which is just generic Burgundy. So that's going to be one of our Zooms coming up, I think, 9th of September, when we're going to look at the Comdorvo vineyard. Uh, but back to the Beau Brun, the beautiful browns. Um, the vineyards, uh, the vines normally go down the slope, so from the top at the west down to the bottom in the east. The premier crew bit of Beau Brun, they actually go uh, north-south, so they go horizontal with the, main, with the roads rather than up and down the slope possibly because you can, you can see how the vineyard is uh, shaped, and possibly because you can get longer rows in that way. Um, so here we have Shislaine's, and I don't know the exact age of her vines, but I do know that this is one of her oldest vine parcels. And I mean, this domain is unique, and now I'm going to test my memory. They have, they have no vines outside Chambord Musigny. They don't have any Grand Cru's. Uh, they have obviously some village Chambol, 
but they have 11 different plots of Premier Cruise, and now they've started uh, doing um, all, all 11 bottles separately. So let's see if we can get them. We've got Bobra, Kha, Fuet, they have the only bit of Premier Cru Verroil, though the map doesn't actually show that there is any. Uh, a tiny bit of Sentier, which is now bottled apart, but only very recently. So that's one, two, three, four, five. They've got Bode six. They have some Noiro, which again has only just recently been bottled. They have Grancher. Some reason those two. Hmm. Some of my hearts are disappearing again. Boing, boing. That's one, two, three, four, five, six. Gone away. Combat seven. Chateau eight. Charm nine. Eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I've now got eleven, but that's because I've have I got eleven. I don't have a change. I don't have plant. Charm we've already done in that part of it. Um, I don't think they have first a lot. I think I'm about there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Anyway. Um, but Bobra is frequently one of my absolute favourites. I love their Fuet as well. I love their Cra. Uh, but Bobra, I've always had a, 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 a weakness for. Um, so, Ghislaine Barto, special person. Uh, I, I shall uh, tell a quick story here. Um, she didn't get married, especially early in life. And uh, at one point, an English wine merchant friend of mine was working the harvest there. And uh, Giselaine's father took rather a shine to him and said, Ah, oh, my friend, I won't give his name, uh, uh, my friend, you know, my daughter's not married, how about it? And um, my friend said, I, Well, I mean, I adore your daughter, she's absolutely terrific, but unfortunately, back in England, I'm already married. And old Gaston Bateau said, Well, I'm broad minded. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so then subsequently, Ghislaine uh, either uh, married or at least um, his, uh, uh, her partner is uh, Louis Boyot. And they, two, they both have substantial demands. And they have just one child, a son, Clément, who's taller than I am. And he's a very strong lad and needs to be because he's actually from 2019 taking on vilification of both demands. Um, but Ghislaine does have her own style. Hard to um, put a sort of complete uh, expression on it. Uh, from 09 onwards, she learned that she needed to start picking early. Um, <laughs> boy, no question, what is the name of Shusane's dog? God, I don't know, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Maybe called Shusane, Klaus, but. Um, so she makes vines, uh, they're de-stemmed. Um, as I say, all vines here. It's pretty cool cellar. Her cellar is cooler than her husband's cellar, even though they're in the same building. That's a pretty classic nose. That's, that's exciting. Mm. Yep. Acidity is still moderately high. It's better integrated with the fruit because the fruit is richer than it was in the case of the Volnay. And of course, Volnay and, and Chambol are, are, are twins. Um, right, Klaus, who still hasn't got the trick of sending it to everybody, but Klaus has told us that her dog is called Jeremy. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, there you go. That's a nice wine, isn't it? Um, I should maybe try the... 
Chevrolet alongside. I've just polished off the um, last of the Volnay and it's coming together quite nicely actually. And I see you asking if it might be a white of the night, but of course you're all gonna have the chance to vote. Mm. There is more to it, isn't there, even in the, that impressive Chevrolet Champotard. And frankly, I love acidity in my Pinot Noir. I really do. Uh, and once you have it with food, then acidity disappears into the food. But it is not a worry. I'm told that as you get older, you like acidity less, but it hasn't happened to me, to reveal. Good, good, good. Um, should be leaving some wine for my friends downstairs and my wife for later, but it might not happen tonight. Last wine of the official six. We are going into Grand Cru territory with the Echezo, made by Claire Nodin. She's beginning to label her wines as Claire Nodin nowadays. Prior to that, they were Henri Nodin Ferrand. Um, and um, that last wine, by the way, is labeled at 13 and a half alcohol. The um, Chambon Musenu. All the others are 13, apart from the Costuary uh, Pomar, which is 12. That's being village wine and high up the slope. And the Echso is 12.5. Um, but Claire Noda wants to make fine, elegant wines, and she really doesn't like power and richness, and she hates sulfur, not because she's you know, a, a trendy naturista, but she's always just found, she's got sensitive nose, sensitive palate, and she just hates having sulfur around. So she's uh, moving on. Um, she's, 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 she's learning to uh, move on from using sulfur, is what I'm trying to say, I beg your pardon. Hmm. Now this is the, uh, maybe I'm just checking the only wine this evening, well I think the uh, stems would have been used, whole bunches. She's now very strongly in that area and uh, uh, some of her range, not all of them, but it's clear from the labels on the bottles, some of the wines are moving to sulfur-free for vinification and then in the maturation it depends on how they're showing, but she will add a little bit of sulfur before the bottling. Um, so um, let's see if we have any um, uber geeks who can tell us who she's married to. I told you who Gislaine was married to, but who is Claire married to? Give you a second or two to get it up there. If not, I will reveal all. Yep, Paul Day, not unsurprising, has hit the nail on the head with Jean-Yves Bizot. So she is not as absolutely um, sort of ultra tunneled in her thinking as Jean-Yves, but uh, Jean-Yves Bizot is no sulfur and all, a uh, whole bunch. Um, oh look, we're, we're developing some romances on the, on the chat, so if you haven't been watching the chat, please do, quite fun. Kate and Alistair, stop flirting. Mm. So I've mentioned this before, that with our blind tasting group, 
some people mark down the whole bunch of wines because they taste dry when they're very young and they think if they're dry young they can only get drier so <laughs> sorry i've just seen the latest place okay what about the sweetness in this wine there is nothing dry about this it's got that exuberant um very floral peony type sweetness of flavor um it's not a little bit of the strawberry it's not too much the crushed strawberry white pepper uh things but it's a very lifted suave gorgeous um, um uh, i'm i'm being <laughs> i'm losing my focus because of what's happening on the on the chat there never mind uh, but it's a really gorgeous, beautiful bottle of wine. And actually, uh, compared to the two previous wines, I think I probably, out of the three Cotonou wines, this is the one that I'm probably going to drink, drink now. Let me show you where Echezo is fun, because the great authority, uh, Mr. Sylvain Pitio, his atlas insists that Echezo is 36.25 uh, hectares. Several other books have 37.69 I can't make any of these figures. Uh, no, I've gone too far. Apologies. But this comes from Les Rouges du Bas, which is that sector there. Uh, but actually, oh, give it back. Actually, there are a couple of, well, too bad, you've seen me do it. Um, you worked out where it is. There are a couple of blocks uh, down at the bottom of it. Oh, it's come back, great. The two um, here and here in, this, in those gold stars, just be able to come back probably. Uh, there are two segments which everybody describes as being in the Echezo uh, uh, du Bas. In fact, I think are in the Rouge du Dessous. Anyway, uh, du Bas. I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to make sense of this, but I have got uh, too much surface area. Uh, this bit over here, um, which is the Onorvo bit, uh, is cited as being five hectares, and I've got enough people in Onorvo, and I can see where their plots are to make eight hectares. So I'm still fighting with it, but when I was preparing for tonight's Zoom, I ended up going off on a tangent and trying to get all my numbers in Echezo uh, together. And anyway, I contacted Sylvain Pitié to say, Oi, I can't make your atlas work on, on Echezo. We will know more later. Um, still, so uh, almost all of the growers actually have rows which come almost all the way down from top of the hill down to the bottom of the hill, apart from this little block at the bottom there where they go sideways, but everybody else is coming all the way down. Um, what else can we tell you about this? She has got, um, a, I haven't bothered with sizes of holding, she's got a third of a um, hectare, uh, which is enough to um, make a decent amount of wine and uh, we at Berry Brothers I started working with uh, Claire because I adored her Oak Cote de Nuit and Oak Cote de Bone wines especially the Oak Cote de Bone as it happens uh, which are made 100% whole bunch and, uh, and pretty much sulfur free I just fell in love with those wines and we couldn't have every cuvée we couldn't have the Echeuse because that was with Domaine Direct which is I think uh, was the only source uh, in the UK for her Echezo, but we took otherwise all her whole bunch wines uh, and uh, I, I got on buying them uh, from her for my own cellar here. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan, I must admit. 
they're a bit more expensive than many other people, but they're not getting into the into the high territory that her husband makes. Um, yeah, so uh, my namesake Jasper, or Jasper, I don't know how you pronounce yourself, um, uh, is wants to know how we contrast Eschazo with Grand's Eschazo. Uh, that is a very good question. Uh, Eschazo itself, you're going to get different results. Rouge, top of Rouge du Bar, uh, it's a little bit thinner soil and, 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 uh, and, and cooler. Most of Eschazo is thinner soil. Uh, probably the sweet spot comes through the middle. Les Cruaux, Poulailler, Champ Traversin just above is pretty good. Sorry, I don't know why my signs are all disappearing. Um, maybe Cartier du Nuit, which got stolen out of you. can see where the wall of Clos-Rougeau goes. Here all those. Uh, but this little bit, oh, um, Ronan's ended, no, he's back. You can see where the wall of Claude Rougeau goes, but it sort of should have come up here and had that little bit of Cartier de Nuit, but instead that's gone into Echusso. So they are all a bit different. Uh, Grand Echusso is again different, and it seems to be, uh, if you're up here, uh, you're actually in Musigny, and it seems to be, there's been a bit of a downwash that's missed all though there, but it's come through into Grand Echusso. So you get that extra bit of richness in Grand Echusso, uh, which reminds me more of Musigny and Clos Saint-Denis, whereas Echusso is more like a delicacy of wine and a lattice work, and a French dentelle is an expression that works really well. But I also find in Rouchot Chambertin, for example, uh, it's the sort of more in limestone than in clay, um, lightness of touch for Echusso, whereas Grand Echusso is a little bit more solid and a bit weightier. And though if you think back to the days of Domaine Angel, you could argue year in, year out, was it the Grand Echusso or was it the Clos Rougeau which you preferred? The Echusso was never up to it. Um, DRC, normally Grand Echusso is firmly ahead of, of Echusso. Domaine La Marche, I would sometimes like the Echusso as much as the Grand Echusso, um, incidentally. Good, right. Um, so we'll take a little look. I always put the best wine at number six, as I said. Well, logically, you want to build your tasting. Uh, sometimes it's a question of the power of the um, vineyards, which won't always mean that it's the best wine. But, um, but yeah. Um, oh, there's something else. Ah, you're, you're bad. Okay. Okay, so a lot of you are, are manifesting under, under biggest names. I'm sure you can get imprisoned for doing such things, uh, but you've logged in under under different names. But congratulations, Baron, for having the good taste of calling your son Jasper. Right, um, and there are people, there is a lovely restaurant, uh, the Contour des Tontons in Bone, who have a British bulldog, which for reasons I cannot begin to imagine they have called Jasper. Uh, I'm going to look at the questions, uh, unless you'd rather that we did the poll first, but let me answer the questions quickly. Um, Ronan, are you going to intervene? Which, should we do the poll first or I'll answer the questions first? Uh, up to you. Maybe, maybe we'll do the questions first. Let's do the questions. Okay. So a question from Sid, first of all. The compromise idea between preserving acidity and waiting for skins and stems to ripen further. Know the early picking by Donjville and Volnay because sugar's two degrees in, in a week in 2020. How would you best compromise 2020? Sometimes you don't have a choice. If you can see that your leaves are dying in certain parcels, certain plots, then you need to go in there. Now, for most people, I'll have some plots like that. And the problem is 
logistically, once you start, it's quite a big call to say, I'm going to do, you can do two or three very small plots with a, a sort of a family group or the, the, uh, the domain team. But once you start your main harvest, it's a big call to stop for two, three, four days before you go on to the rest. A few are prepared to do that. In the Cote de Bone, I think the grapes were ready and you did have to go. In the Cote de Nuit, it's not so certain. It will depend on how you run your vineyard as to when you need to go. But I think those who didn't have to go last week will probably be happy to have had the little bit of rain that we had on Friday and be picking this week. But I'm not saying that those people who went early uh, made a mistake. It could be that their vineyards, the way they run them, the particular pinot plants they've got, required going in earlier. Uh, Mark, who's my favorite Denny, Morte or Bachelet? Uh, du Rocher doesn't happen to be a Denny, and I do enjoy Du Rocher's wines very much. I was a bit down on Chevrolet for a while because there was a slightly over the top school. Uh, I'm going to say Denny Bachelet is, I mean, I bought his wines from the 1981 vintage onwards. I can't not count him as a top. And I also prefer the Morte wines under his son, Arno, it's still labeled Denny. Uh, so that allows me to go with Denis Bachelet, uh, but they're both brilliant. Sid asks, don't I think that Estonel Saint-Jacques, Lano Saint-Jacques are benefiting huge, hugely from the usual Lena Colwyn style um, to riper 2018-2020 weather conditions? Definitely they are amongst the terroirs, Pomar, Fissa, Ossidures, and the Lavo Saint-Jacques sector of um, Gervais Chambertin. These are the areas which I think are definitely benefiting uh, or not suffering from any downside in the hot vintages. Jan Kamas, Jan, yes, on the subject of the pandemic, what are the prospects of November, Ospice and the Poles, other activities being held live? Um, right, we don't know yet for sure. We know that the uh, Ospice to Bone sale is definitely going to happen, but we know that Christie's is set up for doing it. Um, online if that needs to happen that way. I think there will be some sort of live presence, but they will enormously restri restrict the number of people who can come into uh, the, 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 uh, the Les Halles, the auction room. Um, we, we don't know how it will work out. I'm they've canceled the big public tasting at the, not to do with the Ospice, but the one that happens in the Palais de Congrès. In all honesty, I can't imagine the Pole de Merceau going ahead, but I haven't heard anything definitely, and it's not my call to say. But I think some of the really big-scale activities are not going to be able to happen. Um, but stay in touch, and, and, and we will advise. Uh, Claire, no uh, Ferrand, or Favre for HSO. I have lots of HSOs that I, that I really like. Uh, I've got a couple of other vineyards with, with Favre that I like. Uh, even more than that, Eshesso. Uh, so if you ask the question between those two for Eshesso, then I'm going to go with Claire because it is her top vineyard. Right. Okay. Um, now, they're also being asked on the chat, and I'll come back to those, but let's, uh, we've got the poll up. Thank you, Sophie, if it's you who's done that. Um, and, oh, goody, I'm allowed to vote as well this time. Well, that's a treat. I'm not sure I am going to vote because there are too many which I loved. Um, so take a minute or two to vote. Um, 
we've got three Cateboy and three Catenui. We've got two girls and four boys. We've got I voted. Submit. Everybody else? Are, are you ready? Have you voted? Hope so. Which case? Countdown. Let's put the let's show the answers. So Kosturi gets some votes, Rappe gets a vote, so they get some percent each. Third position, so Cote de Bay not coming out, our selection, whether or not, this, this is actually very interesting. Uh, that's disappeared from my screen, oh no it hasn't, I just put something else in front of it. Uh, so that leaves us with um, the Jury Chambertin, which all really impressed us as soon as we had it, uh, just gets onto the podium in bronze position and then the top two are clearly the um, Ghislaine Bateau and Claire Ferrand. So the girls win it, hands down, yay. Uh, they make wines of various styles, and that absolutely is not a feminine style of winemaking, I would insist. Um, but uh, that's interesting to hear your thoughts, and thank you for sharing them. Um, I think I've covered the... Um, yes, on, on tonight's showing, when Cote de does win above Cote de for Reds, it hadn't particularly been my thinking beforehand, but I haven't enormously been tasting them. So uh, tonight is yet another. We should never look at an individual tasting note or opinion as definitive. All they are are plots that you can draw on the graph and you need to allow your opinions to evolve. And tonight is one of those steps forward, uh, which does show quite how well the, uh, uh, the, the 2010s and the Cote de May are doing. And my opinion on the longevity, I really don't think, we're now 10 years on, I'm inclined to think that uh, we would go as far as up to 25 years for the top examples, but I don't really see them uh, unless you like uh, those very delicate ancient wines. But none of the, very few of these wines you couldn't start drinking and almost all of them will be very in very happy positions within another five years. Uh, so there we go. Right. Um, I hear Roman breathing. <laughs> Jasper, I was just going to ask you what you're doing next. I think it's Shambon Mazanidi Kondovo. Uh, what I'm doing next is going downstairs for dinner and a few. <laughs> but uh, uh, next is Shambon Mazanidi Kondovo. And I'm quite excited about that because I really, it really puts me on my metal when I've got to be able to be so precise and actually look at different people's holdings and what they do. And there are, really, there are four main people who've got the Premier Cruise, and we're going to have all four of that. We're going to have two stars at the village level. We're not, in fact, going to do Jacques Prieur's uh, Musigny holding, but we're going to do all those. And, um, and then after that, it's Coach Chalonais, where, again, um, I'm looking forward to it because I've, I've, I've specified exactly which producers I want. And that's going to be good. And uh, now I've got to think up a few more evenings. So do let us know if there are particular styles of tasting or particular producers or vineyards that you want us to do. And uh, I am going to sign off then. Didn't get any gougere tonight, but I got a full dinner for downstairs. Good, good, good. And we can play around with the names of winemakers, dogs, and all sorts of things next time. But thank you for joining. Thank you, Ray. And see you again very soon. Bye-bye. Have a great dinner. Bye-bye.